From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello everybody, it's Chachi and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles on Pod617.com. Here we are for our big 50th anniversary White Album presentation. This is going to be part one of four episodes that we're doing. Here with my dear friend and instructor of the Beatles class at Suffolk University in Boston for, what, 15 years or so, Mr. David, Professor David Gallant. And uh, so good, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, David. Chachi, it's always uh, always great to be here, 50 years since the White Album. And uh, it's so it's so deep and thick, you know, and it's it's uh, it's dark and light all at the same time. Well, there's lots to get into because the new re- the re-release of it is trying to kind of revise history a little bit. We'll get into that. We're going to get into uh, all of the songs on album number one, and then we will explore album number two from the two album set. It's been a fantastic and very much a beatly fourth quarter, 2018. We saw the release of the John Lennon Imagine box set. And uh, by the time you hear this, Wildlife will be out on the box set, Red Rose Speedway, the Imagine box set. Boy, if you're going to buy all this stuff, (laughs) my (laughs) Lord. Of course, with much fanfare, the exciting re-release of the White Album, it's been the subject of what, symposiums, discussions, interviews, analyzing, studying. And I would perhaps guess, uh, and you might know this, Professor, that some students might even be writing a paper on the subject. And I bought my first copy of the White Album from the Harvard Coop in Harvard Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts, $11.98, far more than what, could I, what I could afford back then, but I found a way to buy it, hung the poster in my bedroom, and, and I was bummed because it was a two-sided poster. And then you had the 8x10 portraits and hung them all up, and that's why it's kind of hard sometimes to find an original White Album release that's complete because all of us hung the stuff up. Yeah, it, it, uh, whether it was, uh, I mean... I don't think that 3M scotch had developed all the great type of hanging <laughs> yes. goo and gum. The two-sided and, uh, tape. So, yeah, I, uh, there are still some uh, thumbtack holds. And, you know, do you want to impress someone with, with how hip you are where you have the uh, the collage side or how smart you are by having the lyrics side up? And that was a, that was a very important dorm room decision. I think that you're right. Uh, my students will have an option, I think, in their final exam in a week and a half or so to... Uh, choose an essay topic that has to do with the White Album. And uh, it's such an important Beatle moment that there is very little agreement about, which is why I think what always makes it such a fascinating uh, uh, source of, of discussion and and deep listening. And uh, uh, like I said, it, it's it's a great feast. Uh, I'll quote one of my former students who said that it's it's the Beatles' hot mess of an album, to use a current <laughs> that's term. Right. That is, that's true. And as I remember distinctly back then, because the Sergeant, we were just coming off of Sergeant Pepper with the, the album cover and the words on the back and all these things to look at, and then certainly the concept album and the music. And then we get a plain white album with the Beatles embossed on the cover, and everyone had a number. And it was four sides of music, an amazing time, and lots of fun. So on this episode of Get Back to the Beatles, the esteemed professor, uh, dear friend David Gallant, is with me. But we also have a very special guest. I met this gentleman uh, at the Ringo Starr Show in Boston a few years ago, and uh, he's a pretty amazing guy. Let me get his credentials here. I have so much stuff written down. He's a first-generation Beatles fan, musician, memorabilia collector. Boy, what a collection he has, Professor. He lived and studied and performed in Liverpool and earned an MA in the Beatles Popular Music and Society from Liverpool Hope University, currently working on a project book 
a book regarding specific elements of the Beatles' music, and we are really happy to welcome to microphone number three, Mr. Tom Kelly. Hey, Tom, how are you? Great. Good to be here. What does the White Album mean to you, Tom? Uh, well, the White Album is one of the first albums, like yourself, I bought it when it came out, and I was 12, going on 13. So by that time, I'd already been playing guitar for a couple of years, and it, it meant a lot to me because even though I, I was very much in tune with the earlier albums, by that time, being 12 and being into music already, it just, um, it just resonated more. It was pretty amazing. And let me set the stage here before yeah. we get into conversations on this uh, subject, on this album. Let me throw this out for you guys to comment on. The, the Beatles and the times were changing fast. You had Meet the Beatles. Then, you know, the next Rubber Soul changed everything in two years, right? Meet the Beatles. A couple years later, Rubber Soul was out. Rubber Soul inspired Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds inspired Sgt. Pepper. And I think without Sgt. Pepper, we may not have had the White Album, at least as we know it. So, that is actually true, yeah. Oh, thank you. Paul's joining us. So, Professor, what do you, you know think? what, Chachi? I, I think the way you're, you're threading it here is, is, is very interesting because, um, it, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the importance of Beatles imagery, okay? And images, <clears throat> album covers specifically. With the ex and experimental rubber soul with the stretched out faces of Robert Freeman, you know where they'll 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 make a work of art out of accident, kind of like using feedback for "I Feel Fine," right? Mm -hmm. A musical accident. Let's let's make it part of the song. From that experiment, you have, of course, Klaus Vormann's graphic design for Revolver, also experimental, where the Beatles are not really the Beatles; they're an image on the back. They are. From there into Sgt. Pepper, one of the most famous album covers of all time, collage and the Beatles hiding behind a mask. Then they hide in animal costumes for a magical mystery tour, That's right. become complete cartoon figures, right? Always going away from themselves and then complete minimalism with the White Album. That's what's beautiful about it. I mean, many, many writers would say every novel ever written is contained in the, uh, on a blank piece of paper. It's a matter of getting the words out, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how I think of the White Album. Just let's let's wipe it out and, and completely start from the beginning image-wise, but then it says everything. And speaking of what they're coming out of, right, um, I guess if we're looking at the White Album as one of the first uh, noticeable cracks in the unity of the band, oh, part of that is inspired by having spent time with the Maharishi where, <laughs> in India where a lot of the songs are written, and it's about meditation and being alone and by yourself, mm -hmm. right? So, right. I mean, that's it, it's a great album for the group, and there's divided opinion even amongst the Beatles. Well, this is the first album where we really felt like we were solo artists and we were we were musician we were studio musicians for each other's songs. And Ringo has this 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 warm glow feeling about it that oh, we were all together. Well, sure, after you left, <laughs> after you quit <laughs> yes. temporarily and came back, so um, that's why it's such a great moment. You know, not just musically, but, I mean, it just contains so much. Like, uh, you know, Tom was saying, if you were into folk, you had your angle in. If you were into something more electric, you had your angle in. There's even a damn lullaby, for crying out loud. And don't get me going on Revolution 9. We'll get there. We will get there. And you know what I neglected to say? Also on our panel today is our spiritual leader, the boss, and who runs this whole network, the Boston Podcast Network. David Yaz is here as well. Thank you, Chach, as always. Just simply a thrill to be here. Chachi, tonight he is our Maharishi. He is our Maharishi. Come on, he's such a joy. That would be the love guru, I guess. 
sitting so. crisscross applesauce, and uh, <laughs> let me go get the incense guy. So before we get into each track and we all comment on it, let's uh, talk about the upheaval in the world that was going on in 1968. Uh, Robert Kennedy path, uh, assassinated Martin Luther King, students rioting. Uh, either you gentlemen, uh, Tom, David, or both, please comment on what was happening. And, and certainly Brian Epstein was gone. Yeah. Um, uh, the man who at that point, you know, they thought, well, would he have been able to say, even if he was in the position to say no, would they have listened, <laughs> especially after Sergeant Pepper and, and not touring anymore? Um, certainly it was devastating to John for a while. Uh, and I guess some people have commented, uh, overall, it's a little bit too facile, but 1968 was the year that the world had a nervous breakdown, uh, with the political assassinations and the upheavals, everything that maybe the Beatles had been part of, a wave of, of, of consciousness coming amongst this group of baby boomers all around the Western world. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're at the age where they're going to act upon these ideas, right? The, the little crack of the door opening to freedom and expression and have had to do with alternative politics, alternative consciousness, uh, alternative strains of, of, of love and, and liberation. Um, it, it takes to the streets, you know, first, you know, on college campuses and then other places uh, all around Europe. I mean, the De Gaulle government basically almost fell in, in France, and this happened in Germany and campuses in England and then here. So it is, it is quite a, a moment of, of, of upheaval, and you really couldn't have a musical product like Sgt. Pepper that brought everybody together, right? <laughs> yes, that was so the year before. If, if the world is falling apart, maybe the White Album is what represents the falling and apart. And where'd you grow up in 19... Where were you in 68? I was, again, I was the world's hippest five-year-old, and uh, I was, I was uh, grew up in southeastern Massachusetts, God's okay. country. Okay, and Tom, where were you in 19... Where'd you grow up? Around Lowell. Here? You were in Lowell, I Massachusetts. Was in Lowell, son of Kerouac. And what do you what do you recall from the year 1968? Well, I guess like I mentioned before, I was a little young to be, you know, overly concerned with the upheaval in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, with a lot of a lot of questions about about the Beatles and what does this mean, what does that mean, and were they influencing uh, culture or were they re- reflecting the culture? Uh, they never really got, in spite of how things might have gone afterwards, like right at the end of the Beatles with Give Peace a Chance and All of the Wars Over uh, campaign, they didn't really get very political during, you know, they, they stayed away pretty much from controversy. I mean, All You Need Is Love, not a controversial uh, anthem, an anthem nonetheless. And, um, and it's interesting, too, because even for years, they, they wouldn't declare which Liverpool soccer team they were fans of, <laughs> you know, for fear of alienating one side or the other. So they I were can't pretty. Tell you. <laughs> so they were. Uh, Paul did come out eventually and say it would have been Everton because his dad was an Everton fan. <laughs> but um, so they they didn't want to alienate people. And the other point that I would like to make is, as much as you want to read into a lot of the songs and what they mean, reflecting the times, etc. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Paul McCartney quoted as saying, it's just a song. You know, the people tend to take things a bit too literally, and it's what the listener makes of it. It isn't always what, what they intended for it to be. 
Right. And uh, and that comment reminds me of the Imagine film when John and Yoko are in, on at their house and they find a homeless man sleeping on the property, and he's he references a song. And he says, "Well, you, you were sending that message to me." He goes, "No, you know, I was taking a good. I'll use the word dump. I was taking a good dump that day, and it came to me. You know, I'm not sending out messages to you." And and then they fed him, which I thought was very very nice. But that that certainly goes along with what you were saying. So. David is going to play a bit of each track as we go, but let's set the stage. I mean, the Beatles were without Brian Epstein. Um, they were juggling the music business and being creative and recording and writing songs. And then there was all kinds of activity in and out of the studio, people visiting, which never happened before. So, and then this new, the new album, you have uh, Giles Martin saying, you know, they were a band, but for years... For me, it felt like it was a four-sided solo album, as you said earlier, that, you know, John would be performing with his backup band, Paul performed, and, and sometimes they weren't even in the studio when Paul was doing Blackbird uh, and so on. So, and then Ringo left, and Paul and George were arguing, and then there's a bed in the studio, and, and Yoko's on the scene, and she is singing in a song. So there was lots going on. They had just returned from... Uh, India, and besides George, the other three thought it was a waste of time. It wasn't what they had anticipated, and there wasn't much to do. But I would say, gentlemen, if you agree, it was probably the most prolific period because they had nothing else to do but <laughs> but meditate and write. Uh, and uh, and John was missing Yoko, and he was there with Cynthia, and Yoko's writing him letters, and. So it was a prolific period. Was it their most prolific, Tom, do you think? Well, I think, um, I think going back just a little bit further, one of the reasons, of course, given for um, ending touring was so they could spend more time in the studio. And that certainly came to fruition when they did stop touring. They were very uh, productive in the studio. But after Sgt. Pepper, and, of course, that coincides with, uh, with Brian Epstein. Uh, dying, that um, I'm not going to say that it sounds like they took him for granted. I think he was a little unclear of his role at that point since they had stopped touring. But I think he was still very important, uh, a father figure, if you will, um, and just a, a conduit between the, the group and the record company, similar to George Martin, another you know, authority yeah, I mean, you, figure. But. You believe that he wasn't sure that the Beatles are going to re-sign him when his contract was over. But there are, there are, they've been quoted in various places saying, of course they would have, you know. Right. Uh, so, but I mean, you can see where he would have been somewhat insecure because up until then, they were a, a touring group. They were a live group. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it probably, getting back to the specific question about if this was one of their most prolific times, I think... Probably yes, because they they were able to get away. I know India wasn't supposed to be looked upon as a vacation, but it probably seemed that way. They were putting Apple together. They had just come off um, arguably one of their first big failures, which was Magical Mystery Tour. Terrible. The, the <laughs> yes, um, the Magical Mystery Tour. Um, I mean, the rest of '68. Uh, it was it was a good idea for them to get away. Yeah, the, the business, the music business is in flux. I mean, if we're talking about mm. Brian not really knowing if they would re-sign him, this is around the same time where uh, George Martin really isn't working for EMI anymore, right? He's an right. independent contractor, but he uses their studios. 
So in, in a sense, you know, the, the, the way that that stodgy industry had been run was upended now that artists were more in control of their own product. And so in some ways for a while, even with Apple, the inmates were running the asylum, even if the inmates were the Beatles. So <clears throat> with the failure of, of Magical Mystery Tour, they're still, finding, they're still finding their way in terms of being their own boss. They're not really answering to Brian anymore. Uh, they're not answering to George Martin, which frustrates him in short order, as we know, especially with the, the Let It Be fiasco. And uh, he wasn't even in charge of telling them, look, fellas, this could be a great album if you had one album, right? Instead of this sprawling mess. And he wasn't saying no. And none of them didn't want their songs on the album. So that's why we have so much there, which I, I think is a, is a blessing. Uh, and uh, you wouldn't want to sort of kick to the curb some things that you think are unlistenable because they have their important place into songs that are absolutely necessary. Uh, so in that sense, you know, the studio and the industry is going through its own chaos, much like the world is. Um, and I think that India was important. You know, we forget, too, not to forget that there were other collaborators. I mean, you don't have Dear Prudence unless Mia Farrow's sister is is off not getting out of her yurt or tent or wherever mm -hmm. it was that she And Donovan is there and, and Mike Love and... Uh, Mickey Dolans. I mean, you've got other people who are who are there, and they're bouncing ideas off of, and and everything else. And it's a matter of what to do with it when you come back. So, it's it's prolific in in that sense because of the the volume. Uh, but I don't know that it's any more or less prolific than during the era when they were writing on demand and they were writing on a heavy schedule right. and they were needing to put out a single while they were on tour uh, and and in the midst of filming. So I think that. That era from you know sixty uh, three to to uh, to the end of sixty five, and I often talk to my class. Now we have in sixty six, you've got one single and one album out. You know that's it. Uh, that's it, that's and it. not that great of a tour, and and no film, and our sense of Beatle years start to shrink a little bit. That you know we think, wow, a band puts out an album a year, that's incredible. Well, they were doing two and three in a year. Mm -hmm. So that type of slowing down of time, I think, you know, puts that sense of uh, prolificness into perspective. Okay, well, let's get into the side one. Okay, gentlemen, we're all at our homes at the age that we were in 1968. We have the album, the smell of the vinyl when you cut open the plastic and you can smell the record inside the sleeve. Fisher turntable for me, Chachi, with the strobe making sure that it was turning just at the right wow, RPM. Wow, very nice. Radio Shack for me with the speakers that come off and you can put them in the window. And Tom, I don't know how you listen to your records. Zenith. Zenith. With the speakers. Oh, with the off. big box? No, uh, no, they uh, were, it was still portable. Uh, there was a quarter on my needle on some occasions. But here's the first track. And this, maybe this song wouldn't have come about without Mike Love. The participation of Mike Love. And uh, it starts with the landing of an airplane, an appropriate opening to a two-record set. Here it is.
And there we go. We certainly don't have to play the entire song. Everyone no. has heard it before, but let's discuss. I, one of my memories from when this song came out, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I remember in Belmont, Mass, was the John Birch Society, and they had exclaimed that the Beatles were communists, that they preferred the USSR, and, uh, and the other thing that strikes me on this is no Ringo on this track. Paul is on drums. So uh, back in the USSR as, uh, you know, contributed by Mike Love of the, of the Beach Boys. No, I, I wouldn't. Um, I guess that means that we could never accuse uh, uh, John Birch Society members of having a good sense of irony or, or anything <laughs> like that. Um, not to get too political here, but I'll, I'll make that assumption. So, yeah, uh, you know, obviously there are strains of, of uh, California girls where you go around all the areas of the Soviet Union, just like uh, the Beach Boys did with, um, you know, Ukraine girls versus Northern girls, whatever it might be. And um, I guess this might have been the first instance before Come Together of uh, copping off Chuck Berry and maybe making him think twice, say, hey, wait a minute, that's my back <laughs> in the USA, yeah. uh, before even Here Comes Flat Top grooving up slowly. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a neat musical pastiche, right? You've got the Beach Boy harmonies, including Mike Love and the, for the backing vocal and, um, a little bit of Chuck Berry in there as well. It's a neat kind of kickoff. Tom, I thought that, uh, this, this is a great way to open the record. It is a great way to open, open the record. For one thing, it's, um, as much as it's a pastiche of, you know, the, the Beach Boys, which... We're doing Chuck Berry, and, you know, it goes on and on. It's also, from a, from a songwriting point of view, it ticks all the boxes because it's a song that's, that's referencing the USSR. So, of course, there's references to uh, the Ukraine, Belalaikas, the part at the end of the bridge, Georgia's always on my mind, my mind, my mind, my mind. You know, Georgia on my mind. Hoagie Carmichael. Another song. <laughs> And you've got the state in the USSR. I mean, it, it's really, really good. That's really well written. An, an incredibly important song for all the, uh, as a, a colleague of mine at the university, a math professor would say, um, yes, we were all hippies in the old Soviet Union. We loved this album if we could get our hands on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, track two, which is probably one of my favorite songs on the record. And interesting to note, again, Ringo is not playing drums. The first two songs. Remember how he felt when he was thrown off a Love Me Do? <laughs> Unloved. <laughs> Here it is, Dear Prudence. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. favorite lines asking prudence to come out and play the sky is blue it's beautiful and so are you such innocent songwriting but spectacular songwriting john can really paint a picture with his words john's guitar playing paul's drumming set the stage for the album as the album takes you from the light and beauty of the day to a journey that brings you next into the glass onion but let's talk about <laughs> dear prudence and what kind of song that is tom what do you yeah. what, how would you like to well i i think 
you you see because uh, I've been listening to some of the uh, the Ishii demos too that the the inspiration for some of these songs is just right out there. You know, this is she she wasn't coming out, so write a song about her coming out. He's tired. He's writing a song about being tired. You know, so the inspiration is out there, but of course you have to have somebody that knows what to do with it mm -hmm. and can take that personal experience and turn it into a song that will have some kind of mass appeal. Yeah, it's a it's it's a neat. Um... Uh, I, I guess he's he's as Chachi says painting this picture where uh, Lennon is, is was very much in, especially for Sgt. Pepper, his period of that of trying to reproduce dreamy childhood innocence, right? And then he kind of snaps out of it with "I Am the Walrus." So this is a, an interesting song because it's kind of that aggressive uh, innocence, at least musically. And it's also out there that Prudence Pharaoh has said. I don't know what they had their panties in a twist about. I was fine. <laughs> you know, they kept on saying, come on, come on. I was meditating. Obviously, I think that, uh, as Chachi mentioned, maybe besides George, uh, they were too restless to sit there and meditate too long. McCartney has talked about it. Ringo left early. Uh, uh, John got very cynical very quickly, right? Uh, and so that's why they thought, why are these people spending all the time there meditating? Well, they're kind of getting into the teachings, mm -hmm. and uh, they had no time for that. And that's why <laughs> I think Magic Alex got involved and started making accusations that John, you know, believed about the Maharishi flirting with Prudence. Uh, so you just you don't know, but it was a it's a great song. That it's would a, make me run and hide too, Joe. <laughs> exactly, and which it, actually could have been uh, just projection on John Lennon's part because he's still married to Cynthia. She's there and he's interested in Yoko, yeah. who he's going back to. And Yoko's sending him letters. Yeah. And so It's a crazy period mm. for John. And from that song, you go into a really creative song by John Lennon. You know, and I said Prudence was my one of my favorite tracks, but Glass Onion is fantastic. Here it is. You know the place where nothing is real well, here's another place you can go Where everything flows Looking through the bed back tulips To see how the other half lives Looking through a glass onion I told you about the war is a mean man You know that we're as close as can be well, here's another clue for you There's John Lennon trying to be nice to Paul. He's going to throw Paul a crumb by recognizing him as the walrus. And, yeah. and John, here he is seeing all these fans reading into his songs. So he decides to play a game with everybody. And he's the referencing self, all these things. Self-referential hall of mirrors, right? <laughs> yes. And then... Uh, so, okay, if you're going to read too much into the song, let me give you something. Like he did with I Am the Walrus, right? Famously, the, the young kid who, was, who had, uh, was at Quarry Bank, Mr. Lennon, were, were studying your lyrics. And he says, wow, that's funny because they, they couldn't wait to get rid of me at Quarry Bank. And uh, so he's, he's gaming, you know, and, and as Tom was saying, the idea for the lyrics are there. Well, the idea is half of their catalog, half of their back catalog, and and have those songs brought together and talk to each other, kind of like mm -hmm. their characters on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Let's mm -hmm. everybody get together and talk to each other. Lady Madonna's over there, the walrus is over there, right? Let's, let's, uh, let's have a party. And uh, you know, some have said that, you know, he couldn't wait to use the line, 
cast iron shore. And he it, right. it, there was a line waiting to be used in some song, and, and, and he wedged it in there. And that was but, a reference to Liverpool. Yeah. Tom? The other thing that I would mention about this song, and especially uh, some of the John Lennon songs that that um, that's reflected in the Isha demos, it's interesting from musicians' standpoint, but I think a lot of people would be interested to hear how much of the song is already there and how much it changed as they recorded it. Because some of Paul's songs sound much more, you know, Mother Nature's Son, he starts it off, sounds a little like the, uh, the, the master recording of it. But the John Lennon songs sound more like, uh, you know, things get added to them. Sure, sure. You know? Yeah, an early version right. of it that really right. morph into something else. Yes. Glass Onion, a fan favorite. I get lots of requests on my show, Breakfast with the Beatles in Boston, for that song. And then it goes into a song that uh, has been debated over the years. <laughs> Paul with his Oblady Oblada, uh, 70 takes or whatever it was, <laughs> frustrating the others. But George and the others had a lot of takes for their songs too. So here it is, Oblady Oblada. having fun by saying bra b-r-a much like in girl when they would say tit 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 in the background <laughs> obladi oblada a song that some fans love to hate <laughs> professor well you know uh, i think that uh uh post uh yellow submarine and uh all together now this is probably uh one of uh, and pre octopus's garden one of the last beatles kids songs and I say kids' songs only because a lot of kids are. Uh, I'm going to make her own personal reference, and I hope that uh, she'll she's listening to the pod. And and uh, shout out to uh, Ms. Forbesy Rub- Russell of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Sharon, who runs the children's choir. This is a staple, very much a staple, and she'll tell the story of of Paul hanging out with uh, uh, Desmond Decker of Desmond Decker and the Aces. Love Desmond uh, Decker. And, the Israelites. My, I bought is, that 45 Israelites. as a child. How's it going, it. Desmond? And he would say, oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da, right? Which is sort of, uh, kind of like a come see, come saw. And, uh, and uh, so I always look at it in that vein. I can't separate this song from my two young children singing it on a, on a Sunday morning. And so it's always a crowd favorite. And uh, I'm I'm actually quite partial to the uh, uh, the anthology version where you actually hear some steel drumming and you you do get that sense of the Beatles and Paul who was in you know would be in London trying to get the different musical flavors where the Beatles go a little bit West Indian you mm-hmm. know and uh, uh, certainly coming from uh, Liverpool quite a melting pot of a, of an English city uh, those strains would have been heard there as well. So Tom on the list of White Album songs. Do you, is this high on your list, or where does it sit? I really like this song. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong I've with always, liking it. I've I always like re- it, too. I've always really liked it, and one thing I really like about it, from a musical standpoint, the, the brass in the, in the choruses and the background vocals in the choruses, uh, you know, it just really, I mean, it's very polished sounding. It's interesting, kind of the uh, 
gender-bending mm. kind of, uh, you know, right. in the last couple of verses, you know. A few years before Lola? Exactly the Kinks, right? what I was going to say. <laughs> and, and I will say. Ahead of their time. It's okay for us to love every song on, these, on this album, because I do. Yeah. But uh, after 50 years of it, some people have developed their opinions uh, whether good or bad. So yeah. I think all three of us, four of us here on, at the at the panel, love the album from start to finish. That goes without saying. But that song does get scrutinized. Hi, everybody. I'm Chami DePerel. Let me take a minute to tell you about the Boston Podcast Network. How would you like your own podcast? The Boston Podcast Network can produce one for you, whether you're a lawyer, financial advisor, business owner, or really any kind of professional. You should have your voice heard through this exciting new medium. A good podcast is more powerful than traditional advertising. If a prospective client hears your podcast through their earbuds, you're already in their head. Literally, pod617.com will help you deliver a message and build relationships. Clients and centers of influence will delight in being a guest on your show. Go to pod617.com to start planning. And in the meantime, listen to the great shows they've already produced. The Irreverent Bitchless Bride podcast. The hilarious show known as Shawshanked. And the wild trip through the paranormal that is Monsterland. Be part of the pod revolution. Visit pod617.com. In pod, we trust. The next track we have, you have George Martin saying to him, cut down and let's make one great album. Take out the chafe. I don't know if that was what he said specifically, <laughs> but this next track, would you consider this song or bit uh, a song that wouldn't have made it on the one album uh, theory? And here it is Wild Honey Pie. Wild Honey Pie. Now, there's two Honey Pies on this album. So, Wild Honey Pie. It could have ended up on a Paul solo album as a little snippet, much like Ram and Ram On, uh, and those other little snippets that you find in the early Paul McCartney's. So, Wild Honey Pie, where does this song sit, and what do you feel about it, Professor? Well, you know, um, in retrospect, when you know that they were getting, uh, they could be creative with fragments of songs that they didn't know what to do with or couldn't finish. Uh, hence, you have the second side suite on Abbey Road, right? Uh, but on the White Album, with the fragment that no one knew what to do with, I think it's perfectly placed. I, I really can't go back and then edit the album because I wouldn't know how to go into Bungalow Bill without Wild Honey Pie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine going from Obladi Oblada into Bungalow Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of a funny little demented song. And, uh, uh, you know, I think having in, in life, having first heard uh, the B-side to, to Let It Be, You Know My Name, Look Up the Number. And I thought, well, this is funny and this is weird. And then going back to the white, I'm saying, well, this is, a, this is what makes, the weirdness makes sense, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Tom? Yeah, well, I think this is clearly one of the contenders to be eliminated if you were going to make that one great, you know, white album. But then it wouldn't have been the white album because it does have 
fragments or songs that that standing alone maybe not so much but something like uh, wild honey pie well you can listen to it it only takes a minute and it certainly adds to the whole white album <laughs> yeah, experience does. and right. state of mind at the time exactly. excuse me point of fact it's only 52 seconds 52 seconds, 52 seconds. Oh, just feels enough. like a minute close enough and then it goes into the next song which starts um i uh, being an animal lover i <laughs> i took offense to shooting tigers let's hear it uh, professor david yes those voices in the background that's yoko ono first time on a beatles album maureen stocky providing some harmonies as well and anyone who was in the studio at the time sang along in the chorus and uh you know i'd like to find this guy who meditated and then went out and killed animals uh and uh, i guess there's nothing to do in india uh, except that meditate and kill tigers but i uh, bungalow bill is a favorite of mine i enjoyed it and I like the humor in it, and uh, Professor. Oh, the all-American bullet-headed Saxon mother's son. Yes. That's a great stream just of, of imagery and of words there, and it, it runs together beautifully. You know, uh, Chachi, you mentioned you know, the tigers and with the elephant gun. Uh, I always think of the Groucho Marx. Last night I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got there, I'll never know. <laughs> I always think of that when hearing the song. But uh, And there's an article, and I believe it's, way back when and uh, or maybe not that long ago in like journal of popular music and society where someone sat down and realized was there something going on with all of this animal imagery throughout the white album because it starts with bungalow bill and we've got raccoons and piggies and monkeys and and martha the sheepdog i mean what's going on with that and is it something that something basic the animal imagery and where is it going uh, so in that sense, it's part of that first group of songs that are really visceral and, and, and like blood and guts, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, part of that whole trilogy of, you know, sex and death and procreation and excrement and help me out here, Tom, before <laughs> I go too far. Well, I think it's just, it's another good example of writing a song about something that, you know, he hears about uh, or observes uh, first firsthand. Hand. And um, they certainly, for the most part, on the White Album, got away from love songs. Mm -hmm. So definitely... Right. And, uh, and, you know, John, if he sees a situation like that, he'll write about it. But Paul creates, as further into the album, you know, Rocky Raccoon. John has consistently said, yeah, I couldn't write a song like that. Uh, it has to be an experience that I have experienced, <laughs> whether it's something internal or something he has seen with his own eyes. But certainly Paul weaves his own stories with... Rocky Raccoon. And then from the Bungalow Bill song, you go with the Heyo, and you go into the song by George. While at his mom's house, he sees a book on her bookcase. He opens it up, and the words he sees is gently weeps. He keeps it in the back of his mind. Is it George Harrison's epic? Did he have to bring in a 
Eric Clapton to play just to ease the tensions in the studio. Were things that bad for the Beatles? And initially the Beatles weren't, the other three weren't really into working with George on it. So here it is, while my guitar gently weeps. See the love that's sleeping While my guitar It took 37 hours for them to record that song, and everyone gets on Paul for, you know, 60 takes of Old Bloody Old Bloody. Is it George Harrison's epic, Tom? Well, I think it's it's absolutely one of his uh, best, you know, if not the best song that he did in the Beatles, and um, I think it's it's another really interesting example of uh, the whole thing about Eric Clapton bringing Eric Clapton in. Well, there may have been some truth to it to relieve the tension. He says that they're on their best behavior with Eric Clapton there. Also, though, George had a history of not playing lead on some of his songs with Taxman. Mm-hmm, Paul's right. playing lead on it. In Let It Be, he's got John playing a little lead in For You Blue. So this is a guy who never had a problem with someone else, you know, do, doing the guitar solos. Well, um, I, I agree that uh, uh, in, in a lot of families, if the dynamic is not healthy and the atmosphere is, is full of conflict, uh, if the neighbor shows up, you don't want to show that to the neighbor and everybody behaves. So uh, Eric was the, uh, Clapton was the neighbor here. George pulls that again with Billy Preston during the Let It Be sessions. And uh, he was more willing to uh, to partner with outsiders, you know. Uh, uh, he didn't have the same baggage of being a Beatle as the sort of binary star system of, of John and Paul. So in a sense, he had more freedom to look at them as that insider-outsider and have that perspective. And it's also, I think it's a great song because it's it sort of breaks that line that George had been on from some of his earlier songs of cynical about love and about the world and then putting his Eastern consciousness spin on it and and the meditative work and, and what he had done on, on Sgt. Pepper. And he kind of, he puts that type of spirituality in music, he kind of puts that to bed for a while, right? But this song of his, I think, is... When I heard what I heard on the anthology series, the unplugged version, Yes. Uh, for me, that was superior to this. And, and it's a completely different song. It's a completely different feel, even though the sentiment is there. And a lot of the other unplugged versions or, or studio rehearsal versions or, or songs in process, uh, they don't have that same distinctness as, as While My Guitar Gently Weeps. So I, I kind of prefer that to this version. And I do too. And being a radio DJ and certainly a fan uh, growing up, this song has been played millions of times on the radio. And so on my show, I could probably count on one hand how many times I've played this version as opposed to the one on the anthology because it's refreshing to hear the other version only because this has been played so much over and over again, uh, really saturating the market. But it, it certainly is 
George Zepic. David, yes. Yes. How did you know I had something to say, Chachi? You know, this song has become um, famous for a second reason, a, another reason now. Uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions. Ah, yes. Um, just a few years back, right? Yep. And what was it? Was it you guys will know? Was it were they inducting George Harrison as a solo artist? Was that what the deal was? Or I think that was the case. You're speaking of the performance with Prince. Yes. Amazing exactly. performance. As, as legendary as Prince's performance, isn't it also equally as legendary that he said he had never really heard the song before he was asked to play it? That he hadn't studied it, he hadn't heard it? <laughs> so we go from While My Guitar Gently Weeps to the last song on side one. And uh, kind of controversial at the time. It was released, you know, Martin Luther King was assassinated, Robert Kennedy assassinated. But the, it's actually like three three songs in one. And we go into the last song on side one after While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Happiness is She's a Warm Gun. a girl who misses much. Du -du 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 -du. Oh, yeah. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand like a lizard on a windowpane. With the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime A soap impression of his wife which he ate and donated to the National Trust So as the song continues to play it starts with a little story about a pervert <laughs> And then it goes into his need for a fix Yep And yep. Uh, Paul said it was an advert in an American paper, happiness is a warm gun sort of thing. It was get ready for the long hot summer with a rifle. It was sick coming by your killing weapons. Come and get it. But it's such a great a great line. That's a quote from Paul McCartney. It was in the NRA riff on, on happiness is a warm puppy, Charles yes. Schultz and Snoopy. And, uh, you know, John had said, you know, how odd is that, that your happiness comes from that you've just shot something, right? And uh, it, you're right, it's a, it's a mini tour through the history of rock and roll, right? Going back to doo-wop at the end. So I think that it's different fragments or sections really blended together fantastically. And there's a lot of to do with sex and with Yoko, who he used to call Mother Superior, which is a whole other weird road to go down anyway. Right. Um, and uh, probably, I would say, uh, you know, Chachi, I don't really think much of the... Uh, the Beatles-inspired film across the universe, but this might have been one of the only redeeming uh, scenes. Uh, uh, Selma Hayek in a nurse outfit might have done it, but I don't know. Tom, what do you think of this song? Uh, I, I think it's, um, well, as far as the Beatles repertoire goes, it kind of stands alone in terms of a John Lennon song with different fragments put together. So there we are, Happiness is a Warm Gun, wrapping up side one of the album. Filled, well, maybe short of Wild Honey Pie, filled with very strong uh, tracks. So what do we think about side one? Uh, <clears throat> I think that's just the last, the last beats on uh, Unhappiness is a Warm Gun is just a perfect way to end it, right? Uh, that rising action and then the fall at the very end. And you are kind of spent after the first side uh, in a lot of ways. And um, 
so you know it it puts you on that it puts you on the roller coaster. Uh, it not the same variety as you might have had even say with Revolver, where within the first five songs you have a George, a Paul, a John, and Ringo singing uh, "Yellow Submarine." So it's not as obvious as that in terms of the variety. But you do have the three main songwriters and their own particular vision or slant, and uh, uh, you know, I mean, you're wondering what's going to happen next. Interesting. That's a good. Good point, Tom. What do you? Yeah, think? and I think the the first side, it's. Um, I think you could characterize it as a strong side because the songs themselves are, sound very much uh, finished, again, with the exception of Wild Honey Pie. But they sound finished. They sound somewhat conventional. And so, but of course, they have four sides in which to, you know, take a lot of chances. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I appreciate all of your participation, the great Tom Kelly. Uh, Tom, please come back again. We loved having Absolutely. you here. Terrific. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, sure, if sure. And Professor Gallant, as always, it's always good to see you. A pleasure, Chachi. And uh, mothers and fathers. Okay. If you have students that are looking for college, go to Suffolk University. Take David's class. Absolutely. Uh, big boss, the man, the spiritual advisor, Mr. David Yaz. Thank you, David. Thank you, Josh. My name's Chachi Lepred, and I host Breakfast with the Beatles on the WUMB Radio Network. 91.9 FM in Boston every Saturday morning. You can listen on the web, wumb.org. Every Sunday morning on the Seacoast Oldies Station, 92.1971 in New Hampshire and Maine. You can listen online at seacoastoldies.com. And today's episode of Get Back to the Beatles is brought to you by Subaru of New England and Direct Tire and Auto Service. And stick around to pod617.com. There's lots of great pods on the website and on iTunes. I especially love John O'Neill's Fright Night. I've been on that once. I want to go back on it again because I love horror films. And we appreciate you tuning in and listening. Subscribe so you get us all the time. And uh, thank you all. Gentlemen, thank you. We'll be back very soon with another episode of Get Back to the Beatles. Take care of yourself, everybody. See you soon. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi Lepret at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.